This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Impact of Influence, the Murdoch Family Murders. This is the unfolding story of a powerful South Carolina family, the mysterious deaths they are linked to, and our quest to bring you the truth. Hello, friend. Welcome. Matt Harris and Seton Tucker, so grateful that you're spending time with us. We know, especially as this trial has gotten underway for Alec Murdoch, there are a lot of options out there. We've been on this thing since just a few weeks after the murders of Maggie and Paul on June 7th, 2021. And now Alec Murdoch is on trial for that double murder. And we are, as we're recording this, the the Thursday, we're almost two weeks through since the beginning of the jury selection and the prosecution is still going strong with their witnesses. Uh, Seton was there this week when the courthouse was evacuated. We'll get to that. I want to remind you, Murdoch Podcast on Facebook, MurdochPodcast.com. Matt Harris podcast at gmail.com. And as we've said, we apologize that we're not getting to the Facebook mentions. And I think I got it down to 75 emails I got to uh, have to respond to. We're working hard on it, but things are happening quickly. Uh, she's in Walterboro. I'm doing the court TV thing with Vinnie Palatine every night from eight to nine. So now the courthouse evacuation scene. It was a little bit. Chaotic. All of a sudden, the judge just said, I need the jurors to go to the jury room. Mm -hmm. They go to the jury room, and he says, we need to evacuate the courthouse. And he did he tie it in, because I was watching it as it was happening, too. He tied it in with lunch as well. It was, it was close to lunch break. Usually, he breaks for lunch around 1, 1 1.15. And I think it was, what, shortly afternoon. So yeah. it, was, it was an early lunch break for him. And the state had just called the sled officer, Brian Hudak, to the stand. So it was just kind of like, okay, he's just taking the stand. And then we're being told to leave the courthouse. But people really didn't seem, they, you know, no one was running towards the door. But they did open those back doors. If you look at the front of the courthouse, it's a beautiful courthouse. You actually enter in underneath. You see two step staircases going down either side. You actually entered the courthouse under, and that's where security is. They actually opened those big doors up to the back, and so people were able to go out the way we usually would go in, and then you could also just go out and enter down those stairs, and there were police outside kind of getting people clear of the scene, and actually, I was I decided I was just going to go ahead and leave at that point, and I, I did see, I believe it was Ellick and the police brigade getting him to a safe location. Mm -hmm. Yes. And then I decided I was going to stop at Waffle House. Well, of course you were. <laughs> Waffle House is Seton's favorite. And then I ran into a Colleton County Sheriff's officer and asked her what was going on. And she said it was a bomb threat and that you know, they were kind of prepared. She said, uh, we were expecting this. Yes. Uh, talked to an, an attorney as well uh, and said that courthouse bomb threats are occasionally happened anyway, let alone in a high profile one. 
the folks at Colleton County Courthouse, the law enforcement involved, big, huge thumbs up and tip of the cap because they have been great down there. They're nice. They've kept everything into control. They're not used to these kind of high-profile things, and they have just been spectacular. And the clerk of court. They really are running a tight ship. They have it down to a science at this point. And when we were being told to leave the courthouse in a very orderly fashion, actually, two of our listeners spoke to me, Kelly and Ashley. So that was, that was kind of cool. We kind of touched on it, the episode we did a few days ago, uh, about the witness testimony of Shelly Smith, Alex's mom's caretaker. And you wanted to point out that when you're in the courtroom, it's a little difficult sometimes. I was confused about whether there was one blue tarp or two. It was really difficult to hear Ms. Smith. The judge actually asked her to speak up several times. I think you can hear better when you're listening on television because the microphone is right up next to the witness. But when you're in the courtroom, sometimes it's a little difficult. I I think we got a review in Apple where someone said, facts wrong, I'm not listening. So maybe you're not going to probably hear this. But (laughs) But here's the thing too about that you may not know. If you're thinking home, you can't see the exhibits. They've tried a couple different ways. And even when I was there and they got some sort of splitter, so you, it was up, but you really couldn't see it and read it. Uh, but at the end of the day, they release the exhibits. Yes. But as you're going on. So sometimes, yeah, it's possible there's a, a fact lost in there and we'll, we will straighten it up as, as soon as we can. So in her testimony, and it's worth repeating that she was such a sympathetic figure on the stand that she really, as you mentioned in our last episode, you felt the jury was really hanging on her every word. Absolutely. They were leaning in. They seemed very engaged. I've also thought they were engaged in other things when we'll talk about the financial crimes. They also really seemed to be paying good attention about those as well. Well, the witnesses were fantastic and and we'll get into that. So one of the big things about the uh, Shelley Smith testimony was that she said that she saw Alec come in, I'm going to say eight days after. It was a few days after the funeral of his father's. So she, she says he comes in with a tarp-like material, balled up, and he walks into the house and he goes to the second floor. Well, she says tarp several times and then they kind of question and it says tarp-like. I mean, th- there was definitely confusion of whether it is tarp, tarp-like. In the state, the prosecution really wanted it to be a raincoat. And I think they made a huge mistake by calling it a raincoat instead of a poncho. I know it's a small thing, but a poncho seems a lot bigger and more likely to be confused with a tarp than a raincoat. Yeah, good point. But she really stuck to that tarp thing, right? I mean, Griffin brought out a tarp. Right. And so where I was confused in our last episode, they talk about this tarp was placed in a chair. There, there was a tarp. There are two things. Yes, there's a tarp and there's a raincoat. Right. There was a tarp that was placed in a chair. And then when SLED finds out about this and they search the house in September, they find a tarp that was folded on top in a storage bin on top of some plates. Mm -hmm. And they also find a raincoat that was balled up in a closet. Mm -hmm. On the floor. On the floor. was unusual to me that they took this raincoat and they tested this raincoat for gunshot residue. Blood. Blood. But they did not test the actual tarp right. when she said it was a tarp. Right. I don't know why they, what, what was the rationale on that? They, they, look, they look foolish in that. And not only that, what they could have done was got out the raincoat and got out the tarp and gone to Shelly Smith and said, 
which one of these was he carrying in? They never did that. They could have done that. And it was September. Remember, this is September. Now, she, she only told them about it because she was in a car accident, I think, in Allendale and told an officer about it. So that's the only reason they found out. But this is September. So if I'm on the jury, I am not putting a lot of weight into a blue rain poncho that has a lot of gunshot residue on it because who knows whose it was. We don't have any pictures of Alec, as far as I know, wearing the poncho. It's been months later, and the gunshot residue expert said that could be on there for up to four years. Yeah. In the cross of the gunshot residue expert from SLED, they actually asked the expert if there could be gunshot residue in the chair she was sitting in, and she yeah. said yes. Right. Right. And, and here's another thing. They ask her, uh, whatever happened to the blue tarp? She's like, I, I really don't know. She didn't know. Another thing is the testing of the clothing that Alec was wearing. They say, you know, he had gunshot residue on the shirt he was wearing, but on cross, they ask about, you know, he, he admittedly says he went back to the house. He wasn't sure. He goes back to the house to get a gun and that the gunshot residue on his shirt could be consistent with picking up that weapon. Transfer. Yeah. And it was also on his seatbelt but not on the buckle and not on some other things in the car. And again, he's at a hunting area. And it seems to me that the gunshot residue science is just like pretty easy to get gunshot residue on you if you are around guns and have guns. That's yeah. how I interpreted it. I did too. And I'm not quite clear on where the state is going with Elk's clothing. They have tested it for gunshot residue. So I think maybe where they're going is, oh, he's clearly was firing weapons. So maybe... You know, this is the shirt that he was wearing, but then they're also showing videos, that Snapchat video from earlier in the day where he was riding around with Paul and they were checking out the trees, wearing different clothing. So then there's maybe the implication that he changed clothing and disposed of them. I feel like maybe they need to pick a lane. I see what you're saying. Like, in other words, if there's any changed clothes, then why are they even testing these clothes? Because if, if, if they are implying that he had the same clothes he wore in the Snapchat video, he shoots them and he goes, change his clothes, then why are they testing, why are they testing the changed clothes? And why did they never find the other clothes? And they're talking about, we hear from the witnesses that the clothing smelled freshly laundered. It smelled of like, like was laundry he detergent. Right, so was he wearing the clothing that we see in the interviews after the murders, the, the white t-shirt and the greenish khaki shorts was he wearing those clothing and then he wandered them and then and when do you have time to do that yeah and also the shoes Sully Smith says he's wearing shoes that are a uh, fabric and what is that what's the name of the shoes? Sperry. Sperry yes but at the murder scene he has on sneakers and that, which they collected but they haven't made a huge deal out of it but they pulled him out I think there's more to come on that yeah there has to be there has to be more on all this stuff right well, I want to get back to this blue raincoat, poncho, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> there was a moment on cross where Jim Griffin actually mocks taking off the raincoat, putting it over his head. It's inside out and says it could have just been thrown on the back of Mr. Randolph's car and a gun could have been thrown on top of that and asked the expert if that would be consistent with the amount of gunshot residue that was found on the inside of that jacket. Because the implication was 
that there was some sort of weapon wrapped in this jacket. Right. And the officer said, yeah, that would. And why you mentioned uh, Mr. Murdoch, you mean uh, Alec's father, because it was at Alec's father and mother's house and in their closet. So he's saying maybe it was Alec's dad's coat. We don't even know whose coat it was. That's, that's a huge thing. We don't know whose coat it is. Exactly. Now let's talk about the expert that was on the stand talking about Alex Suburban and what that did the night of the murders. It took the FBI, I think, a year to get into the infotainment system, which is where they're getting this information from. And they went through the timeline of when the car was in park or out of park. They couldn't tell you for sure that it was moving, but it'd be in park or out of park. So you're assuming it's moving and they could tell you when the infotainment system would start booting up. That could be anything like opening a car door, or a few different things. Where would you like to start on this timeline of the vehicle? There were a lot of different timestamps and you just hear it was in park, out of park, in park. I, again, I don't know totally what to make of it. One thing I did take out of it was it appears as if Miss Smith was right on the amount of time that Alex spent at Almeida. It looks as if he was there 20 minutes. I had said that when we were talking about how she felt like Alec was trying to make it a longer timeline, 30 to 40 minutes, something like that. And I kept saying, I don't understand why he wanted to make it longer because my math, and we've had this timeline and working on it for, for a while now, he didn't have to be there 30 to 40 minutes. In fact, it was too long if he was to work out when he said he left and when he arrived. And But then again, he may not have known that there was going to be a record of when he started the car, that sort of thing. Also, I just think in the jury's mind, we've also heard about these cell phone calls and steps. Something has to tie this all together. Right. I, I, and a couple of listeners have sent me and I'll get to your names eventually, had sent me really cool spreadsheets they made, up, they made up, which makes things a lot more obvious and easy to read than the way it's been presented thus far. Yes, and the jury is not taking notes, and I can't imagine how they're able to put this all together. In the exhibits, when you pull the exhibits, it's a little bit easier, or maybe even a lot of bit easier, than, but still, they've got a gazillion exhibits to, they may have to go through. So. Here's the, the way the system worked. Tell me if, if, if you there are any highlights I'm missing or whatever. Because he says, again, it's in or out of park. Let's remember that. So technically, he could be sitting there with his foot on the brake. But he takes off at 9.06.49. That's when it's, uh, the car is booting up and running. 9.06.50 is out of park. Now... 9.22.45 is when it's uh, back in park. So that would line up with a 16-minute drive from Moselle to his mom's house. That fits, right? 9.43.05, it's out of park. That, you would assume, is when he's leaving his mom's house. Got it? And... uh he gets back to Moselle another 16 minutes, and he's back at Moselle. Uh, so he only had to stay there for that brief period of time 
that she said he didn't have to stretch it out to uh, a gazillion hours. It's a lie, a gazillion hours, but he wanted to make it 30 to, he wanted 30 to 40 minutes for her to say, right? Yes. And he stayed there. He stayed there 22 minutes, according to the way the car registered. He was at the house 22 minutes. Which is consistent with what the caregiver said in her testimony. And he doesn't need any more minutes. Yeah. I mean, the the big thing is this time where Maggie's phone stopped meaningful activity, where his car fires up and her phone was disposed. To me, those are the biggest questions, and I still don't fully understand. I mean, the most I can tell you is that the orientation... Of her phone means they were moving it from landscape to portrait, whatever. It was 906.12 to 906.20. Uh, and his car started powering up at 906.44, 24 seconds after the orientation of Maggie's phone. And Maggie's phone was found a half mile away from where his car fired up. Supposedly up. was. We don't know location. There was no location uh, ability to be able to uh, get from the info system. So I guess you could say... Somehow his car was parked right where he threw the phone out. That's true. And he, and he drives around, but we, but that's neither here nor there. The point is, everything fits into a timeline, except for him seeing them at the kennel. As far as uh, his, the normal way we thought it went. Around 9 or 6, he leaves. He drives to his mom's house, stays for 22 minutes, drives back. And then they show him, uh, dry, it looks like he drove for uh, a minute and six seconds from the house. We don't know where he went, but let's just see him. The house to the kennel, right? And then there's about four minutes where he's on the 911 call. He drives from the kennel for 45 seconds. So he's driving a little faster back to the house, gets in the house. He's there for, you know, getting the gun for what looks like about 40 seconds, something like that. And then drives back to the kennel. And then there's a glitch in the system. So it all lines up with what he said. That part of it lines up with what Alex said. Yep. But I don't think it was clear if you're a jury member. No, I think they're going to have to figure out how to make this more clear and understandable to the jury. One moment, uh, Alex's team at least brought out a dry erase board for a second. When I was talking to Vinny Politan from Court TV, he's like, they could have brought in like beautiful graphs and things to show. I need to see those. I need the graph. I need the visual. Yeah. Personally, I do. Yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot. Take a little break and uh, get you ready for some traveling you've got coming up, some international trip where you want to be able to at least get around, right? So you want to learn the language of the country that you're going to. You want to experience it with a little bit of knowledge going in. And you can get a lot of bit of knowledge when you use Rosetta Stone. It's the most trusted language learning program. It's available on desktop. It can also be used as an app on your phone or tablet. And Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion. So instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals. You read stories, you participate in dialogues, so you are ready to go. It's the most trusted, time-tested app out there. They've been the expert in language learning for 30 years. Buy Rosetta Stone now, and you never have to pay a renewal fee. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Impact of Influence listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 40% off. That's 40% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 40% off at rosettastone.com backslash today. And as we mentioned, a big win for the prosecution when Judge Newman said they could bring in 
the financial problems and misdeeds that Alec Murdoch has done over the last 10 years. At the beginning of this trial, we weren't sure how much of that was going to get in, and now all of it's in, as we mentioned. And when they brought up Ginny uh, Seconder, who worked with Alec at the uh, law firm, and also whose brother-in-law is Russell Lafitte, his co-conspirator uh, over at Palmetto State Bank. She was a rock star on the stand. As far as if you were a prosecuting attorney, you'd want her because she was concise and confident and told a story that didn't bore jurors. That's how I felt. I really think she has taken this personally. She's a CFO, and there have been a lot of questions of how didn't she catch this before? I mean, so I think that for her, she wanted to outline all of the things that he has done and also show how he deceived her as well as many others. Yes. She had this look like, I am so over this and so angry. I mean, the law firm had to pay $4 million back, so he's ripping off his buddies. and his. She's feeling like it made her look bad because her job is to watch over it, but he was good. She was not the only person that he, right. he fooled. I think she was really good at telling the story because she's probably told it a million times, exaggerating, uh, because she had to tell it to the FBI and the local people and the bank authorities. And Well, we just heard it two days ago in the in-camera hearing before the judge yep. had decided whether he was going right. to allow the financial crimes to come in. And then, of course, she told it at the Russell Lafitte trial. Yes. So it, it was the third time I have heard this <laughs> testimony. Yeah. But I will say that the jurors were paying very close attention. I know it's hard because you've heard the story multiple times. Let's pretend you're hearing it for the first time. You're hearing about all of these these accounts where he put money into this fake forge account. To me, the most important thing was that she was confronting him about these missing attorney's fees the day that Maggie and Paul were murdered. She said something to him about it, and she talked about he was like a huffy about it. Let's go to the office or, or you know, had an attitude with her, and she didn't like that very much, and why would she? And then she goes in the office, starts to talk about it, and as we've already known, but jury hasn't heard this, they're hearing this for the first time. He gets the call about his dad needing to be uh, taken to Savannah Hospital. Yes. So she immediately says she goes into friend mode. Another thing that was also kind of interesting is she had uncovered, before all this started, I guess in January, they cleared out all the money and some of the partners extend loans to the practice for operating costs. And he mistakenly got a check that was his brother's check, and he he then goes, he wasn't even supposed to get this check. He then goes to the accounting and says, oh, I've lost that check. He gets another check, which he cashes. And then a year later, he cashes the first check. So two checks that were supposed to go to Randy. Yeah, he's stolen from his law firm <laughs> and his brother. It was ridiculous. And she talked about, as you said, how they started to go into friend mode, and the whole point of the prosecution's case is this would ease the pain to Alec Murdoch. If his, if his son and his wife are dead, they'll give him sympathy and it'll delay the misdeeds coming out. Yeah. That, I mean, that's what they're saying. Although she did eventually uncover all of this fraud, it, it, it maybe delayed it a few weeks, but it didn't, she still uncovered everything 
that he was doing to steal. Yeah. And I think, in fact, she might have picked up the pace. One time she said she might not even deal with it till December because that's when they do their end of the year thing. And um, she was worried about, this is kind of important, in, in May, so in June is the, the murders. In May, she, they were all worried in the law firm, especially her, that Alec might try to hide money. And he even mentioned it, putting in Maggie's name, some things, and that sort of thing, because of the boat, Mallory Beach boat crash fatality lawsuits that were going on. So they were worried about that. Yes, and we heard from Tinsley in camera, and I think he is going to be a very effective witness to testify about this matter. Another thing that Jeannie said was, and this is a common theme throughout, Alex had this gift of gab, the ability to read people. He wasn't a great attorney, everybody's saying now. I don't know that they're saying that. I think that what they're saying is that his strength was the ability to use his people skills people skills to read people and see what they wanted and that was his that was his biggest strength that uh Crosby said that uh quote he was not a great technical attorney uh yeah the, he was one of those guys that we we knew about this one. He's like, hey, I know you. I remember your kid's birthday and everything else. One of the witnesses said, and I don't know if it was her or it was, or it was his paralegal. But one of them said, you know, he made you feel like you were the most important person in the room. Right, and that was that was his skill, and that's one of the reasons he was able to pull up these scams for they're, they're saying basically ten years. And the biggest question is, he was doing this ten years. He was confronted the day of the murders. Was it really all coming to a head at this very moment or not? And that's something the jury is going to have to decide. One thing was that she mentioned, uh, Jeannie Seconder, was that she always thought Alec was very forgetful. But then she goes, but now I think his forgetfulness was an act. That's uh, you know interesting take. Uh, she also talked about the after June 7th, or during June 7th, before the murders, incidentally, she says that Alec called and asked how much was in his 401k. But no, because he said he was getting that information together for the boating case. And she also said after the murders, Alec was very erratic and she saw him taking pills. But those could have been anxiety pills. We do not know. And Ronnie Crosby took the stand, who was his law partner and good buddy. And one of the major takeaways from Ronnie Crosby was he talked about in the mid 2000s, early to mid to early 2000s, Alec went into real estate speculation with Barrett Bulware. We've heard that name mentioned in the past. Former owner of the Moselle property. Exactly. And some other partners. And in 2008, the recession hit. Some of the partners bailed. And Alec was on the hook for a lot of this real estate speculation. And in 2010 and 11, Alec won big settlements. He didn't get specific about what that was. Uh, however, I want to see more about this real estate speculation. If they're going to say that he was broke and he stole $8 million plus dollars and made a million dollars a year, where's all this dang money going? Uh, so I don't know how much he lost in the speculation, but that is part of the prosecution's case as to why he was broke. Is real estate speculation. Well, and another thing is, Alec mentioned this whole nap scenario that he was taking a nap before he went to go visit his mother. Why is he telling everybody about the nap? That's suspicious. 
It is. Like, you don't have to tell everybody. But it reminds me of when uh, Gloria Satterfield fell and died. And remember, he was running around telling everybody in town that the dogs knocked her over. It reminds me of that. It seems like he just wants to talk a lot about these things. Also, Crosby drove to Mazelle after the murders, and he stayed there from 11 p.m. to 3.30 in the morning. He also gave Paul's eulogy, talked about how Alec had trouble sleeping after that and was losing weight. And Alec came to a 4th of July party on a boat, and he was carrying a gun, which he found unusual. Let's move to Alec's paralegal's testimony. Seton, there was a lot there. There was. And let's go into a little bit about how she describes Alec. She describes him as a Tasmanian devil. Like he yeah. kind of was very chaotic. Mm-hmm. He was always on his phone. He showed up late. He stayed late. Oh. Yeah, she, and that was consistent with, even though they haven't heard this testimony of Russell Lafitte. But Russell Lafitte, when he was talking about Alec, that's how he described him too. He's like, oh, he's like kind of flustered and running around doing things. And she was kind of the catalyst in looking into some missing attorney's fees involving this Ferris case, which Alec was co-counsel with Chris Wilson. And she had emailed the other assistant for Chris Wilson to kind of looking into these things. And she became concerned so much so that she reached out to Jeannie Seconder, who was the CFO of PMPED to help her try to get to the bottom of this situation. And she was a little concerned that she might get fired, or at least her daughter was, that if she started calling Alec out on all this stuff. And uh, she said that when she went to uh, Jeannie, Jeannie's like, all right, we got to look into this. But the point is, the paralegal's the one who got this, this thing rolling. She did, and she got it rolling before the murders, and also right before... All of these kind of financial things came to light. She was in his office and there was, she was picking up a file and a check came floating down and it happened to be the missing check in the Ferris case, which she brought to the attention of other people. And that was when Alec was fired. Yes. That was also a few days before the Saturday roadside shooting with Cousin Eddie and Alec. And she was really very upset and she was angry because she felt like she had been deceived. But also, she got an email or a text from Alec while he was in rehab. Let's read what that says. Okay, here we go. Hey, it's Alec. I'm finally feeling little better each day. I'm over the worst, but still feel like I have the flu. Real weak. I have been worried about y'all. And I'm sorry I didn't get to tell y'all myself. I know both of you have been hurt badly by me. I know it sounds hollow, but I am truly sorry. The better I get, the more guilt I have. I have an awful lot to try to make right when I get out of here. The worst part is knowing I did the most damage to those I love the most. I'm not real sure how I let myself get where I did. I am committed to getting better and hope to mend as many relationships as I can. You both are special people and important to me. Please know how sorry I am to have made you a part of my misdeeds. Hope y'all are doing as well as possible. I love you very much. PLS, please tell Cheryl and Haley hello, and I am sorry, all my love. So this text was sent from rehab, 
And so we know now that kind of the drug addiction is coming into play. Also want to say that you get the feeling that everyone was really concerned about Alec after the murders of Maggie and Paul. And they really did. She said Mama Bear came out when they would look out the window. They locked the door because the media was there. There was, hey, there was a was concerned about safety. They would see a car driving by and said, you can't go out right now. I don't get the impression that anyone at this time felt like Alec had anything to do with the murders of Maggie and Paul. In fact, as we move to Chris Wilson's testimony, and Chris Wilson was his good buddy. He's in the birthday video that was put into evidence early in the trial and talked about how they were the best buddies and they worked together. And it was Chris Wilson's missing check that kind of uh, got the Labor Day thing and the firing all going. He talks about in the testimony, and we'll do all of it, but, but tying into that, he said he was really, truly worried that Alec was going to kill himself. He did. He did say that. And he said he tried to get him out to do some things, golf and whatnot, but he was very concerned that Alec was going to commit suicide. All of the people we've heard, everyone describes Alec's demeanor after the murders of Maggie and Paul as he was very upset. I think Chris Wilson actually says he was a broken man. One of the big things that Chris Wilson conveyed was how much it bothered him that Alec, his best buddy, was ripping him off. And there was a big amount of money that Chris Wilson had to get out of his own account to cover. And that was... He needed the money from this settlement, and Alex said it was tied up. He sent him three. He sent him six hundred thousand through various ways, but he was short one hundred and ninety grand. Chris Wilson had to take it out of his own account and put it in uh, to this uh, trust. And he talks about going golfing with Alec, and during the golfing outing, he says, "Alec, what's the deal? You know, when am I going to get my one hundred ninety grand?" And Alex like, hey, it's, it's coming or whatever. And, and then eventually gets to the point where Chris Wilson says, Alec, if something happens to you, if you're in an accident or just anything goes wrong, I won't have any proof that you owe me $190,000. So he just took out a pencil and scribbled down a few lines and said he owed it to him. And he said, I had him do that because I thought he might kill himself. And I was worried about him as a person, but I also didn't want to be on the hook for one hundred ninety grand. Yeah, I mean, he, he did seem really upset that he was taken advantage of and fooled by his best friend. And they were best friends. They raised their kids together. I mean, they talked about traveling together as families, going to USC games. I mean, I can't imagine having our couple best friend doing something like this. I mean, it it, it really did seem awful. And he was very close to Paul. And, and his wife was very close to Maggie. And when Chris Wilson became aware of the financial misdeeds of Alec, he went to Almeida, met Alec at his parents' house. And during this conversation, Alec confesses that he's been stealing and also that he's been addicted to opioids for 20-ish years. Mm-hmm. So, and, and he says he was not aware that he was addicted to these opioids at all. You know, it's crazy for us to think about someone being addicted for 20 years and nobody seemed to really notice. No, and there was no behavior, what he said, consistent. They traveled as families. Nothing consistent with someone who was addicted to opioids. And we want to just bring something up from the testimony about 
the Alex car being turned on and turned off and turned on and turned off and something that happened in Cross. Right. So when I was listening in Cross, I was really kind of confused. There was some testimony about Maggie's phone connecting to the Suburban. And I had questions in my mind exactly where this was going. And then we got a tweet from Avery Wilkes with the Post and Courier. It says Barber, who's one of on Alex's team, ends his questioning, but it seems he's noting the lack of a log indicating Maggie's phone connected to Suburban that night could indicate her phone was never in that SUV and that someone else ditched her phone on the side of the road after her death. I had big questions about Maggie's cell phone, about, you know, we've heard about the phone, we've heard about this orientation of the phone and whether it was actually possible for Alec to be the one to dispose of her phone. I would say to that, there's no guarantee that her Bluetooth would be hooked up to Alec's vehicle. And that's the only way the Bluetooth we picked up, right? You have to set it up. I don't know. I'm not technical, right. but I do feel like they're going to bring on witnesses mm-hmm. Yes, to, the defense will bring on witnesses to question this. Well, that ends our 100th episode. Yes. 100! I know. We're getting divorced after we this. Are. <laughs> we're getting a, we're getting we're, a podcast divorce. We, yeah, we get on each other's nerves eventually. We spend as much time together doing things under pressure situations. But we love each other. All right. A uh, couple of emails to end. This one comes from Carol from the upstate of South Kakalaka. Hi, Matt and Seton. Let me start by saying how much I enjoy your podcast. I listen to three podcasts covering the Murdoch issues, all of which have different focuses, but yours has enabled me to learn a lot from a diverse field of experts. John Snyder's input is always insightful and informative, and she says just thanks for doing such a great job with the podcast. Uh, There was an interesting comment. I don't know if it was an email or a comment. And so why do you start the podcast with, hello, friend? Someone asked me that, and I said, because we have one listener. Perfect, Seton. That's it. (laughs) And you're that one listening right now. You're that one, and you're my friend. Okay. Uh, Murdoch Podcast on Facebook. MurdochPodcast.com. Matt Harris Podcast at gmail.com. And now we're going to drink a little champagne, because we've made it to 100 episodes. Yes. Cheers. Thank you all. We are incredibly grateful incredibly incredibly grateful and we will talk soon with the lucky land slots you can get lucky just about anywhere this is your captain speaking uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky no no nothing like that it's just these cash prizes add up quick so i suggest you sit back keep your tray table upright and start getting lucky play for free at luckylandslots.com are you feeling lucky no purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweitz, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery 
and I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify and all the usual suspects.